he told me a story when he was uh, in the bushes during the war that he and his teammates had to fight a hyena in the jungle. So I didn't think uh, Hell's issue was going to be the one that shows us that he's actually vulnerable. Code Roulette. Stories from the pandemic. How you going? I'm Tony. How are you? You good? Yeah. Hey, um, my name is Mubarak Imam and I am resident at the Richmond Estates. My original background is Eritrean, but I've been in Australia, Melbourne for the last six years now. Tell us about COVID. Where did you first start hearing about it? What was your initial attitudes to COVID? What was the community's initial attitudes to COVID here in the Richmond Estates? Initially, it all started with media hearing about it on the news. After that, seeing some community members being COVID positive uh, at that time, or people around me didn't understand what that meant. Being considered as a community leader, I felt it was one of my duties to find out all this is about. So what about the disease itself and what was the first you knew of COVID in mm. the Richmond Estates or in your family? Mm. I guess my first ex personal experience was in my family. So my brother um, had COVID and then he came home and then he passed it on to my both of my parents. Unfortunately, um, my father was hospitalized because of that and pretty much th that was the most difficult part of the whole COVID for us, especially for my family, because at that time we couldn't meet my father at the hospital. There was no contact. My mother was already in quarantine. I was at home by myself. My sister, the younger sister, was already in her sister's house. So all the family were dispersed uh, because we don't want to give COVID to each other, basically. So tell us, how, how do you think your brother got the COVID? Mm. I believe it was from playing soccer with some of his friends. That's what we believe. I think there were six of them and six of them had it. Yeah, after that, he came home, he did his testing, he was positive, but parents did testing, they were negative. They actually sh start showing symptoms five days after they start showing a negative result. And so when was this? This has been almost a year now. Uh, it was during lockdown, uh, at the beginning of the lockdowns, basically. 2021 and, and yeah. so tell us your brother tests positive what sort of symptoms does he have what do you start to see in him mm. I think he started complaining about having some headaches and his throat was a bit tinklish um, other than that I think he had some fever but that was it to him uh, my mother literally had no symptoms my father was the one who coped it um, he had asthma uh, and high blood pressure and during that two weeks quarantine he had to be hospitalized two times uh, well, tell us tell us what happened in terms of his slide into very poor health what do you remember mm. going on were you in the house when that was going on they are my neighbors but i was on top of everything so he started having a little cuffs and because he had asthma he thought that was pretty normal and then the cough started being persistent and then he started having some headaches after that, he started having trouble in his breathing. That's when we decided to actually uh, do a testing straight away. Um, after maybe one day or less than one day, we, we had to call an ambulance for him because it was getting really worse within just 24 hours. So tell us what it, what it looks like when an mm. asthmatic man 
has COVID and you're starting to really worry. How extreme is it? Mm. Well, um, my father is a very resilient uh, man. He, uh, you know, he grew up in a village and he had that uh, resilient upbringing. And probably this is the first time that I see him vulnerable, um, if that's the right word. It was something that he couldn't control. Uh, he was coughing all day to the point where he felt he was fainting. And so he goes off in an ambulance and no one can go with him. He just goes in the ambulance. No, no one can go, can go with him. And at that time, um, because my brother and my mother were already positive, so they actually had to move them to another quarantine hotel. So where did they get moved? They got moved to a place called, I think, Holiday Inn in, in the city. Yeah, it was pretty heavily guarded by police and everything. There was a point where I wanted to take some food to them and it was a lot of process. What, what did you want to take them? Things like vitamin Cs. There were some things that they, the nurses couldn't provide. Um, yeah, they could provide uh, maybe medications, but not uh, vitamin supplements or any traditional medicines. I needed to take honey, uh, black seed, lemon, those kind of things. So you're all split up everywhere. I mean, you're in your house, your sister's with... My sister, my married sister who lives in Western suburbs, yeah. And then you've got your father in hospital. Yep. And your brother and mother in the same room in quarantine? No, they were not in the same room. They were in the same hotel, but different rooms. So everyone very isolated and probably quite scared for your dad in particular. Do you know if your dad got intubated or put to sleep? Yes, uh, he, I think they've done that maybe twice um, during his stay. The first time when he was put to sleep, I think he needed blood thinners or something. Um, but after a few days, they let him out and they told him to go back to the hotel. And within two or three hours, he was back to the hospital again. He felt once he got into the room, there was no window, there was no... Um, uh, fresh air so it was like a ventilator and that actually kept him coughing and the room was a bit cold we raised that to the uh, hotel and was he in the same room as your mother yes yes they were in the same room as my mother and do you worry about not waking up did he tell you that he was worried that they were putting the tubes in and that would be it yes well he didn't want us to be worried at all uh, he would tell us that you know he's fine he's just a cough or whatsoever but I actually had a chance to do a video call with him, like the whole family, and we can see on his face that he was not taking it really good. He was breathing heavily, uh, very, very heavily, that he was actually gasping for air uh, while he was uh, on the video. Um, yeah, the, it, it was a pretty tough time, uh, I guess, especially for, for the family and for the younger ones as well. And what was the vaccination status of the members of the family? So my brother was not vaccinated at that time. My mother was fully vaccinated and my father was um, just the first dose vaccinated. And what was your vaccination status? Then? I was fully vaccinated. Has it been a struggle for the Eritrean community here at Richmond to embrace vaccination? Is that something that's against the culture or is, has it been a quick take up? Yeah, well, um, it wasn't a quick take-up, and it's, it, it has nothing to do with our culture or our beliefs. I think it was around the misinformation that we were getting on social media. Um, a lot of information or misinformation was being shared about uh, vaccination that, 
you know, if you take this vaccination, you're not going to give child, you're not going to give birth. If you do this, you're going to become infertile. They're going to control your genes, those kind of things. So the community took a bit of time to do a research around that. And yeah, as much as we like taking risks, but we don't like taking risks with our, uh, with our health. So it took a bit of time to get everybody on board. And what about yourself? Were you a believer in any of this misinformation or were you on board from day one with, oh, I've got to get this? So I wasn't on board on day one, but with time I had an opportunity to talk with doctors and experts in that matter. And I was pretty convinced that the way of getting vaccinated is much better than getting a COVID and uh, not being vaccinated at that time. So I decided to get vaccinated and was there a reason your dad was only one vax? Was he a little bit hesitant as well? No, he was just waiting for his second dose. It wasn't. Uh, he was taking the AstraZeneca, so he had to wait about six weeks, and it was in between um, that that happened. So very unlucky. Do you believe that his worst reaction was because of single dose, or do you think it was because of his asthma? I would say it's because of COVID, because he he had asthma attacks before, and we have never seen him like this before is there anything that your family would add as being a strange symptom that you you remember yeah um my father actually lost his smell for about four months after he was uh, clear from COVID. so he lost his sense of smell for a long time another strange thing might be our family got actually closer (laughs) so that's something good but um how do you mean that well we had a lot of time to spend together we had a lot of time to be compassionate towards each other and yeah uh, it really humbled us to see our father who you know we we know him to be the strong man all our lives to see him this vulnerable it actually humbled us and um, get us to actually prioritize our lives basically he must have come from an amazing background and the risks of Eritrea possibly brought him to Australia can you talk about what he went through in Eritrea and then he finds himself facing this Mm. death struggle on this side of the world. My father has been through wars. He left his home when he was about 14 so that he can feed himself and his family. He had to quit his education so that he can, you know, feed us. He, He got married pretty young and he was living in the village and he had to move to the big city and survive. He was doing quite well but fortunately at some point the government took all of his properties as they do to many other Eritreans and that's one of the reasons why he fled the country basically. He was in prison for about eight months being tortured so um, I think he he told me a story when he was in the bushes during the war that he and his teammates had to fight a hyena in the jungle yeah, he had a tough upbringing, not only him, but I think most of Eritreans uh, who grew up in the village or around the city. I didn't think uh, Hell's issue was going to be the one that shows us that he's actually vulnerable. Can you tell us, with what happened in Flemington, what was your attitudes here in Richmond? Was there a real worry that that might happen here? Definitely. So my initial involvement with communities in regards to COVID started at the North Melbourne and Flemington housing estates when that whole thing happened. What I saw there is what led me to do the work in Richmond. I didn't want our estates to uh, be impacted the same way that North Melbourne and Flemington were impacted. So straight away we started having meetings with senior leaders in the local area. 
what did you hear? What were the worst stories you were hearing in Flemington? I, I think the first couple of days were pretty difficult. Uh, it was pretty new for everybody and the police presence was very heavy, uh, which might be traumatizing to a lot of community members there. Actually, majority of them thought that it was unnecessary. As a community, we started moving um, by asking for donations to donate to the community members. And then eventually we started collaborating with the government department so that we can ensure everybody up there is taken care of. And what about the Eritrean community? You say it brought the family together. Does mm. it feel like it's brought the Richmond estate together or brought the Eritrean community here together? Oh, yes, definitely. So I actually was pretty much meeting with the senior leaders in the area every week to see what works, what doesn't work, what does the community want, and what are our priorities as a community so that we can pass it on to the government senior leaders so that they can implement it at the ground. Um, starting from, we need to translate those materials because some of our elders don't understand it. And that led us to having you know, events. And I believe this brought the community together because we went through a tough time and that we had a time to celebrate as well because there was something to celebrate about in this community. Thank you so much for being part of COVID Roulette. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tony. Mubarak talked about the very successful project that's been going on at the Richmond Towers. And the person that's been managing that with her team is Laura O'Shea. She is the manager of the High Risk Accommodation Response Team at North Richmond Community Health. And she's going to chat to us more generally about COVID response and the housing estates. Hello, Tony. Oh, hi, Laura. Laura, can you tell us about your role at the the Richmond Housing Estate? For sure. So I manage the High Risk Accommodation Response Project, which is a project that's commissioned right across Victoria for COVID. Our program is specifically responsible in Yarra for Richmond, Burnley and Cremorne with our partners at CoHealth caring for the other suburbs in Yarra. So we've had a chat to Mubarak and heard a little bit about how he was turned around on the question of vaccines. Can you tell us about the success rates in there at Richmond and, and your other estates? I think there's a view that Yarra's rates were quite low and there was a perception, a misconception that this was because of our high numbers of public housing in the city of Yarra. But in fact, I can proudly say that we have led a very, very strong vaccination campaign. And after a slow start, we had our whole Richmond housing estate, you know, give or take up to 100% vaccinated by the October of 21. And how did you do that? How did you combat vaccine scepticism? It didn't happen just by luck. (laughs) It didn't happen overnight. It's been a huge exercise in genuine community engagement. You know, already had a long history of trust on the Richmond Housing Estate. It's the largest housing estate in Australia and very diverse communities. So 73% of them are from uh, culturally and linguistically diverse communities and backgrounds. Our staff speak over 15 different languages and proudly the majority of our team is employed directly from the housing estate. We were able to sort of culturally support different communities uh, through, you know, broad sort of engagement things like, you know, uh, markets and online forums and face-to-face forums, 
right down to those really more targeted discussions one-on-one with those people that were feeling really unsure. And I think the main message for us, Tony, was this notion of doing it for your community. It's actually respecting the people around you and understanding that you are part of the fabric of a much larger uh, community and you need to do your bit to keep everyone safe. People really understood that, that it wasn't just about them as individuals. It was about their grandparents. It was about their families. It was about the, the, the family with young babies that live next door. So we're doing it as a collective. And I think that's what really got us across the line. And there's a lot at stake, isn't there? I mean, you would have glanced over at, at Flemington and seen what can happen when there's such close quarters living. And do you think that was also appreciated by the residents? Yeah, I mean, you know, off the back of Flemington, we set up the crisis response here in July of 2020. And that's a really dark time for residents living in, you know, high-rise towers and being very fearful. And we didn't know what COVID looked like, really. We were sort of at the beginning, I think in July and August, we supported about 58 positive cases across the estate and we thought that was enormous and we've gone on to support hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds of positive cases since and people started to see the atrocities of COVID, what it could actually lead to. It could lead to death. It could lead, you know, to long periods in in the intensive care unit, you know, intubated, unable to be taken off the ventilator, um, you know, chronic long COVID conditions that lead to that. And so what we did was educated community, worked with them to understand their fears, tailored our information, our education to to meet those those concerns and really tried to understand the person at the centre of it. So what, what was their background story? What's led them to have these beliefs and understandings of vaccination and sort of unpack that a bit? And I think that's what sort of really led to our success. Well, thanks a lot, Laura. That's That's a great effort and really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Tony. A pleasure to speak with you. I'm Tony Wilson. COVID Roulette is an Elfington Community Centre project and it has been funded through the Victorian Government's Local Community Access Grants Program. It's conceived and produced by myself and Leanne Coglin. Our musical theme is from David Bridie. Our artwork from Lee Arkapore. Thank you to Mubarak Imam for sharing his story and we'll be getting him back for part two. Thank you to Laura O'Shea from North Richmond Community Health. We're collecting stories from right around the cities of Yarra and Darabin and if you've got one, get in touch. Email address in the show notes. That's it for this episode. Stay well and remember, when the ball's dancing on the roulette wheel of COVID, the square you want to be betting on is the one marked vaccinated. Until next time.